What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Will Houston. He's a British magician that you may know from a couple of things on artofmagic.com, Special K and Freak. He has a doctorate in magic history, specifically what Professor Hoffman contributed to modern magic. He's also the editor for halfhalfman.com's quarterly journal, Quarterly. He's an instructor and contributor for Breathe Magic, which is a medical organization that helps people with special needs gain better control of their motor skills, especially children, through the use of magic and practicing magical techniques. We talk a little bit about Breathe Magic, Half Half Man. Growing up in London, we talk a lot about Professor Hoffman, and we also talk about the definition of magic and how it's kind of seen in popular culture. This is a navel-gazy episode for me because it's not often that I get to talk to an expert in magic history especially one that is so highly credentialed as Dr. Houston. If you enjoy the episode, let me know. Email me at podcast at artofmagic.com. You can also send me a message on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash magicalthinkingpodcast, instagram.com slash treasuryofwonder, instagram.com slash mystery, facebook.com slash mystery, and you should definitely join our newsletter so you can stay up to date on all the new products that we release and also special offers and new episodes of this podcast. This is a really great episode. I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it. So take a listen and let me know what you think. Enjoy. Let's start off this way. You're Dr. William. How do you pronounce your last name? Because I come from a place where it's Houston. Uh, Houston. Houston. Okay. Very close. Okay. Mm. Houston. Scottish. So a little older in this country. Yeah, yeah. I'm not not saying that I have superiority over it by (laughs) any means, but uh, okay. Houston. Um, and your doctorate is in magical history, is that correct? How does that happen? Yeah, I studied in a literature, film, and theatre department. Okay. Um, but the subject of my study was Professor Hoffman and his impact on magic literature uh, in sort of late Victorian, early Edwardian period. Um, so yeah, I was studying magic, but it wasn't a, a magic department or a magic school. No, I can imagine that. Mm. So how does that, how do you, how old are you, if you mind me asking? Uh, 30. 30, okay. And how long did it take you to to receive your doctorate in magic history? Mm, it was approximately five years. So this uh, is a total. this is a standard doctoral program, sort of? Yeah. Okay. Yes, you know, sort of four years-ish of writing, and then six months-ish of waiting for someone to do the Viva, mm-hmm. uh, and then six months-ish to make minor corrections. Because when I had the Viva, I got a pass with minor corrections. So, effectively, they said that it was good enough, but there are a few little bits that need to be tweaked and changed. It doesn't need to be re-examined, but the changes need to be made, and it needs to be checked that they have been made. Okay. Um, when you were writing your dissertation, what, where, where were you studying? What, I mean, what, what tools did you have at your disposal? What libraries were you sneaking into? Mm. And- um, rifling through the books. Well, I live in London, yes. uh, and London has a reasonable collection of libraries. So the the Magic Circle, um, which is sort of a, a members club for magicians in London, very different to the Magic Castle, um, but each has their own set of strengths and weaknesses, I think. Uh, they have a very good library. I think we're probably at about 16,000 books at the moment, um, and sort of reasonably complete and certainly better in an older book sense, uh, which happens to include a lot of Hoffman's personal library. Um, so I use that a lot. I also have a large file of correspondence, uh, particularly between Hoffman and a man called Charles Oswald Williams, who's a Welsh dealer and magic salesperson. 
Uh, and then the British Library is a, another very large library, big institutional library, which has most of everything. Um, so they were very useful for a few things that the Circle Library didn't have, particularly when it came to short stories that Hoffman may have published uh, in mainstream journals and that sort of thing, as opposed to niche magical texts. And then a little bit travelling further afield, coming out to the Castle Library, quite a lot of private collections uh, in America, the Conjuring Arts Research Centre, of course, that Bill Kalush runs in New York. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic resource, both in person and if you're searching digitally. I spent a long time trawling through the search results there for Hoffman, both with the correct and incorrect spellings. Um, All 40 of them. Well, yeah, I think I went with two in the end, just whether he had one N or two Ns at the end of his name. Okay. Um, but that still put me through tens of thousands of results to check and sort of see what came up. So that was enough of a job for a it few It was extensive, months. yeah. Hmm. Wow. What? And then private collections in England as well. Okay, sure. Very good historians there. Was this... Uh, Biographical. I mean, were you? I, what What specifically about Hoffman were you interested in and studying? Mm -hmm. Well, before you answer, can we give the listeners just a, a brief overview of who Hoffman was and why he's important to magic? Hmm. And mm -hmm. then we can continue on. on that, that seems fair. Um, so, Professor Hoffman was a barrister. Mm, he was working in the latter part of the nineteenth century and was interested in magic. Uh, and because of his interest in magic, he had lessons from people like Professor Hellis uh, and also Charlier of Charlier One-Handed Pass fame. Um, he was able to read both in French and German, so he read extensively around magic literature at the time. Uh, and then he wrote a series of books. Uh, the first one was called Modern Magic. It was published in 1876. And I think you could argue that it's the first book in the English language that would teach you how to do magic rather than just telling you how magic was done. So books before that point, broadly speaking, might tell you to pretend to put the coin in the other hand, but they wouldn't tell you how to go about doing that. Uh, Hoffman's book was saying, not only am I going to say you should pretend to put it in your other hand, but also that you should hold it like this to start with, you should move it like this, then you close your hand, then this hand does this, then you look at this place, then you do all this. Mm -hmm. And so it was a book that would really teach you how you could become a magician rather than just how a magic trick might be done. Uh, and then within the world, which is slightly broader, because you have to say something, I suppose, a little broader than just, here's a guy who liked magic tricks. Um, the thing that he changed was that people had said you should learn magic as part of your education, because it would be a good way of teaching you about scientific principles or novel ideas or things along those lines. Uh, Hoffman was the first person to say that you should learn magic, not because how it was done would illustrate scientific principles and such, but because learning how to do it would teach you how to present information to a group of people, uh, how to receive information, how to deceive people, how to spot deception, uh, how to plan to deceive people, and all sorts of other skills that would be useful, not because you should become a magician later in your life, uh, but because they would be useful in your professional life uh, and at the time in the furtherance of the goals of the British Empire. So he was somebody who was talking about using magic as an educational contrivance to teach other skills rather than just as something that you would do as a hobby or as a profession in its own right. So he really is the grandfather of doing magic in a way to understand people better. Yeah. I mean, I suspect other people were doing this beforehand, sure. but he was the first person who was writing about it more or less explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think you can argue that he's very much the grandfather of the magic world that we live in today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because around the time Hoffman starts writing, you don't have uh, a literature of magic, you don't have specialist magical journals, 
Uh, obviously, you don't have websites and internets and all <laughs> this sort of stuff, but there isn't really a world of the amateur magician. Uh, and then a fairly short period of time after Hoffman's books first appear, maybe 20 to 30 years, something like that, you start to see people who have become interested in magic in their teenage years through Hoffman's work, uh, having the time and the financial means to do things like set up magic societies. And the early magic societies appear by people who, for the most part, got their start through Hoffman. Uh, you see people setting up magical clubs, magical societies. Uh, you see magic magazines beginning, you see a specialist literature for magic beginning, the idea of writing books for other magicians, and then conventions and all of this other stuff that we sort of know and love today, I think very much comes from Hoffman creating a broad interest in magic, and then people wishing to develop that later in their life in an amateur way, because they had been taught it for something other than to be magicians themselves. Okay, with all of that in mind, how did you then get interested in magic? We'll come back to Hoffman as far as, you know, what you were interested in regarding him for your uh, dissertation, but how did you get into magic? Because, you know, I, all of us owe it to Hoffman. <laughs> so <laughs> I got it, interested in you know, magic it, through Hoffman. Yeah, it came, it came full circle, so how um, did you... Now, a friend of my grandfather's was a very wonderful magician, um, a man called Claude Perry from Cambridge. Uh, and did the sort of after-dinner entertainment type circuit whilst that still existed uh, and then moved more into the world of children's parties and that sort of thing when after-dinner entertainment dried up. Mm -hmm. um, and a few people have described him sort of as the, the most professional, non-professional magician you would know. He spent his whole life doing another job, but he was regularly doing seven shows of a weekend and that sort wow, of thing. Wow, holy cow. So, yeah, he was a very, very busy guy doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a friend of my grandfather's. Um, my grandfather died, but my grandmother mentioned to him that I had been given a magic trick for Christmas when I was in my early teens, or a bit earlier perhaps. Um, and then he wrote a letter to her asking if she would mind him writing to my parents. Uh, she said no, so he wrote to my parents. Uh, they said that they were happy for him to write to me, so he wrote to me. Uh, and then we corresponded for four or five years, I would think. Uh, he would send me a trick or a book or a piece of advice or something like that. Mm -hmm. I would write back to him telling him about some sort of awful magic that I had done at the time, <laughs> probably. Um, yeah, and that was sort of how I learned about magic. Then a little bit later on, I met him, went to his house and sort of talked about magic in person with a, a magician for the first time, which mm -hmm. was quite exciting. Uh, I found out about the Magic Circle and their youth initiative, the Young Magicians Club, okay. um, which I was a member of for a, a number of years. And it just sort of all spiralled from there. But very much thanks to his kindness and the sort of way he went out of his way to encourage me and help me. Okay, that's really cool. So, I, when, I was, when I was getting into magic, I was... Where did you grow up? Because I grew up in a place where there were no other magicians and I was corresponding through email like you were, you know, with... Snail mail. Yes. Yeah, snail mail. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, and so where, where did you grow up that you didn't... that you weren't, you know... Face-to-face well, -face communicating. I grew up in London. So oh, okay. So you Somewhere no where it would be very comfortable to communicate <laughs> with other magicians. But I suppose if one doesn't know about the existence of magic shops and sure. magicians and stuff, then you go, well, I've seen things on television every now and then. But you don't immediately go, well, there must be shops that sell this or sure, there must be sense. places I can learn this or that sort of thing. And he was a family um, connection, so it yes, was comfortable. He was a family already. connection, so he... Yeah, he sort of guided me through that. And at some point he mentioned the Magic Circle and the Young Magicians Club. It became apparent that I could go to that. Um, and I think I probably heard about Davenport's first and then later International Magic, which are the two magic shops uh, in London. Uh, International, I think, being a favourite 
Um, although Davenport's is also good in its own way. Uh, yeah, and I sort of spiraled into that world of compulsively spending more pocket money than I had. Oh, um, so has everyone. It's a lovely journey, <laughs> <laughs> although a bit stressful. Um, what? How did you, when you were um, visiting the Magic Circle and the youth program, were you... Were you glad that you had had that time to sort of learn about it on your own and kind of, you know, formulate your own ideas about magic before you were introduced to a bigger group of people, or...? Yeah, I'm not sure that I had really gone so far as to formulate my own ideas about magic. Uh, I think the thing that I had had, which I was very glad of, is the idea that one learns something by getting a book and reading it and then getting or making the things that are needed to go with it mm -hmm. and then sort of working through step by step with the book, closing the book, frantically trying to remember what you're supposed to do next forgetting what you're supposed to do next, looking it up and kind of iteratively getting closer and closer to what you think the book says, uh, and then probably realizing later on that you're actually considerably away from what the book was suggesting. Which is a lovely uh, and maybe sense it worked, of discovery. maybe it didn't sort of thing. Yeah. So I was very pleased to be learning in that way rather than just seeing lots and lots of stuff. Um, and also I suppose the things that I had were curated for me in some sense because they were being sent to me by somebody else uh, who wanted to encourage my interest, but didn't necessarily want to sell me the most expensive thing or make sure I came back next month to the next club meeting. It wasn't that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so That's I had a pure. few very good beginners magic books. Um, fairly early on, Claude did send me a copy of Hoffman's Modern Magic, um, which I still have. And again, early when I visited him, I remember reading his copy of Modern Magic. Uh, he would quite often have a snooze after lunch um, because he was in his sort of 70s, I suppose, at the time. Uh, and so I would sit and read whilst he was having his snooze. I remember eating a packet of crisps or chips to an American listener um, whilst reading a copy of Modern Magic. Um, perhaps a few crumbs might have spilt on the pages, and it was only when Claude woke up that I found out that it was a first edition that was <laughs> rather valuable and perhaps important, uh, and felt rather guilty, it has to be said, about eating at the same time as reading it. Mm. Yeah, that kind of stuff was always throughout. Um, sure. Interesting books, old books. Do you have a first edition copy yourself? I do too, but both rebound, so not okay. in the original condition. I recently bought, uh, it wasn't, a, it was a first American printing, hmm. um, and I bought two of them. One has the original copy and one was rebound, and I didn't know um, at the time that the second one had been rebound, but I don't mind. Yeah, it, it looks no, it's just an interesting nice. book. It's Absolutely. nice to have. Um, yeah, and the gilding, I think the the first English edition, or the first eight or so English editions, the binding is nicer than the American edition, but it still is something that looks very much like one hopes a magic book would look. Yes, it's um, got the quintessential, you know, yeah, wizard's Yeah, the motifs tone. of the top hats, and the cones, and the balls, and the apparatus, and the ornamental script, and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, perhaps best did only in Hoffman's work by Conjurer Dick. Uh, which is a short, uh, fic well, a short thing, a full-length novel that he wrote about an amateur magician uh, gradually learning more about magic, becoming professional, then regretting his choice and deciding that he should keep magic as a hobby whilst having a successful professional career. Sort of mirrors everything that he wound up suggesting for people in a real life. Um, and it's got a rather wonderful cover, which is sort of a, a person standing on stage performing, and the boy peeking around the curtain watching, and doves flying out in showers of cards sort of erupting from a hat and so on. Um, and the cover is very nice, and I think my favourite thing about the book, which perhaps beats the cover but only just, is the fact that the lead character is called Conjurer Dick, uh, and his full name is mentioned a little bit later on, and I think it's Dick Hazard, which is a rather wonderful name to choose. <laughs> Your protagonist. Absolutely. 
Um, Richard, of course. Richard, of course. How, how, um, how did you then become so interested in Hoffman that you decided to get a, a doctorate in, <laughs> in his life, basically? Well, I sort of hopped around a little bit. Mm. When I went to university, I suppose that was the first time I tried to do magic in any more serious way, at least in terms of sleight of hand and that sort of thing. Um, it was a point when I first became interested in things like false deals. I suppose there wasn't really anyone else in the area who was doing it, and so that became a defining trait because I was good at it. Not because I was good at it, but just because I was better than everyone else who wasn't doing it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I sort of started to think of myself as the person who does that kind of thing, and then worked more on it, and it's a sort of self-fulfilling thing. You wind up becoming that person if you think you are that person. Uh, so I did that for a little while and did an engineering degree which I wasn't particularly interested in. I found out about three years into a four-year course. It seemed churlish not to finish, so I finished uh, and graduated. And then immediately after graduating, I went to Spain and worked in a magic theatre for three months uh, and then came to America for the first time. Um, Travelled around for two and a bit months doing lectures. In fact, stayed in this apartment for the first time uh, on that sofa, I think. That sofa Um, has so much magical history. (laughs) It's disgusting. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's also not the most comfortable sofa in the world. <laughs> it is not. I was very grateful, I think, cause, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago to be able to sleep on a sofa rather than paying an extortionate rate for the Highland Gardens Hotel. Absolutely. Uh, or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I came over here and did that and then went home and uh, Peter Lane, the librarian at the Magic Circle, was sort of showing me around some of the old books and things that are in the, the, the rare books cupboard at the Circle. Uh, and one of the things he showed me was a handwritten manuscript describing some card tricks. Uh, and I like card tricks, so that was sort of of interest. Um, and some of the people mentioned in it seemed a little bit obscure, a little bit unusual and sort of intriguing. So I looked into them a little bit, uh, and after about six months or so, six months to a year, I was able to figure out that I think the book was written sometime between 1792 and 1806. Uh, and knowing that, it starts to become more interesting because it's describing material that one wouldn't expect would be described at the time. So things like um, at least a forerunner, if not the same thing as the Hofsons are under spread forces, described their pre-Hofsons, uh, a lot of double handling, which I would think of as being much more 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, is being described in a, a very late 18th century sort of area. Uh, there's some fairly advanced ideas to do with memorised decks that are talked about in there, uh, where you can use a memorised deck to know the position of a card, know the card that comes before or after it, Uh, Also, you can use the deck to have some sort of built-in tricks. Uh, In this case, it's a sort of more generic version of the Sy Stebbin stack. Mm -hmm. So the tricks are dealing out four hands of cards and having the suits all separate, or 13 hands of cards and having the values all separated. Uh, And also the idea of using a stack as a coding system, where I could incidentally mention a card to you, and then you could go one card up or down in the stack, whatever we've agreed, and know what card someone else has looked at, even though we haven't apparently talked about it. Mm -hmm. So it discusses things like that in a fairly advanced way and became quite interesting. Um, So I spent a while researching that and wrote about it. I wound up publishing a facsimile um, and transcription of it with annotations, commentary and all this sort of thing. Uh, And then repeated the process again. I went back to Spain for a while. Uh, I came back to America for a while. I went back to the Magic Circle and Peter Lane showed me uh, a manuscript by a man called Professor Robert Hellis. He's a gentleman I mentioned who gave Hoffman lessons, mm-hmm. uh, was friends with Charlie, Devant, Masculine, all of those sorts of guys, was described as being very good, uh, owned a magic shop, and also gave private lessons. When he gave private lessons, he would write down everything he taught his students in a notebook and give it to them at the end of their course. 
uh, in at least one case the student carried on writing down other things that they learned later on uh, and that notebook was the manuscript that Peter had in his collection. Wow. Um, so he asked if I was interested in it and if I wanted to try doing something with it. Uh, I spent about another year researching that, finding out more about who Hellas was, more about what the material was, how it fitted together and published that as a book. Uh, and about that point was sort of thinking Hoffman seemed rather interesting. Um, because I'd looked at Hellas, I'd looked at Charlier, not that much is available to do with Charlier, I suppose, but he certainly seems very interesting from what has been published and also seems interesting from what hasn't. Um, and so it was all sort of leading towards Hoffman perhaps being interesting. And around that time, someone, by complete coincidence, suggested that I should do this academically. And I was very much of the opinion that academic work meant things like my mechanical engineering degree, uh, which was sort of sensible and a good idea, but perhaps not really exciting or fun or captivating. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that you could go to university and do something that was exciting to you uh, and fun as well as being useful hadn't really occurred. Um, but once somebody mentions it, you go, well, I, maybe I can do this as a, as a university thing. And so I wound up emailing a number of people who seemed to have some interest that might overlap with magic. Um, four or five of them got back to me saying, maybe, let's meet and talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, of those, the majority sort of said, well, this all sounds very interesting, and why don't you get back in touch when you've got a more complete idea? Uh, but one lady, a lady called Marina Warner, who became my supervisor, um, invited me for tea at her house, and we had a, a chat about magic. And as soon as I started saying things, she started suggesting things that were interesting. Uh, so I mentioned that the guy's name was Angelo Lewis, because his real name was Angelo Lewis. She said, oh, that sounds like an Italian name. Now, there was a big influx of Italians moving into England uh, a little bit earlier. Do you know if he came from Italy, or perhaps his parents came from Italy? I had no idea. I'd never heard of this. I had no idea this existed, but mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing to look into. Uh, and so most of the things I mentioned to her she was saying something interesting with some sort of question which sort of means you go, oh, I didn't, don't know about this, but that sounds good. Um, so she was a very compelling person, a very interesting person who seemed like she'd be very good to work with. Uh, she was at the University of Essex and she was there in something of a sort of figurehead type role. Sure. Uh, she has a very distinguished career, uh, I suppose, as an academic and a writer of both of fiction and non-fiction, a sort of intellectual, I suppose. Um, and throughout that career, uh, she built up a very good reputation. And so she was at the university in a way that the university can say to the undergraduate students, if you come here and you go on our literature course, you'll be able to study with people like Marina Warner. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was interested in the idea. And I think her being interested in the idea rather than a junior academic who had only just got tenure or something made it much easier for the university to accept the idea of doing it. Um, so she and I discussed several ideas for what could be talked about. Uh, I also had quite a lot of help, I should say, from Richard Wiseman, uh, who's a psychology professor in England who specialises in magic-type stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and Peter Lamont, who's at the University of Edinburgh, and a very, very smart guy who comes up with a lot of very interesting things to say about the history of magic, uh, and more often than not says something which completely contradicts everything everyone else has <laughs> said, and you go, well, clearly that's not... That's not the thing. And then you think about it a little bit more and then you realise that actually, yes, everyone else is probably wrong and he's probably <laughs> right. Uh, so he was also very helpful in terms of looking at what kinds of things I could do. Um, but eventually Marina and I came up with a proposal, sent it to the university. Uh, the university said, well, it sounds good, but we'd like you to spend two years doing a master's degree first in literature, film and theatre. 
uh, I sort of said, I'm not really that interested in literature, film and theatre. I'm interested in studying this particular thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I have to do a master's degree, I'm not sure that I'm going to do it. And eventually they agreed, I suspect with some help from Marina, um, that they would accept the fact that I'd written a couple of books on magic history and some of this other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, as well as having a master's, albeit in a completely different area, sure. as enough. And they allowed me to go straight on to the PhD. Why was she interested in magic? Is there... I mean, what kind of what what fell from the heavens to allow this to occur? You know. So Marina is one of those people who seems to be interested in almost everything, uh, and also seems to know quite a lot about almost everything. Uh, I think there's always an interesting thing when you meet somebody new. There's the possibility they know everything, everything that you want to know that you don't know they know, sort of thing. And then normally, gradually, over the course of a conversation with them, you start to find out sort of where the boundaries of what they know are. So you can sort of build this shape, uh, and you mention, I don't know, stuff to do with card moves, and at some point they're not familiar with something, you go, okay, so this is sort of the limit, this is the extent of your knowledge in that direction. Mm -hmm. And you can build up this pattern of what they know, what they're interested in, and how that overlaps with what you like. Um, Marina's one of a very small number of people, I think, uh, who I've now known in some form for about six years, uh, and I don't think I've yet found the edges. Wow. Um, yeah. But Amazing. I mentioned things to her, and then she mentioned something beyond it that I'm interested in, and which I then look up and I found out more about. Uh, by way of example, at one point uh, we met for uh, a board meeting, and afterwards she was going to the train station at the University in Essex, and I was driving home to London, so I gave her a lift to the train station, and we were talking about Darren Brown, and Darren had just done quite a lot of sort of populist, um, I don't know, either sort of sceptical or atheistic kind of stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were talking about that, and she was talking about the interesting side of somebody who is sort of promoting a supernatural belief system in some way, uh, also debunking other ones and being yeah. quite outspoken about it. Uh, and we moved from that to Christopher Hitchens, who I had been watching a load of videos of at the time and read a few of his books. So I mentioned him as being quite interesting, thinking this is perfect because we've now gone completely off topic mm-hmm. uh, and we're well away from anything that we've ever talked about before. Uh, and then she mentioned uh, going to university at the same time as him and it being fascinating that on a couple of student processes. Uh, she remembers him being arrested by the police and having to be called as like a character witness to attest that he was somebody in good standing uh, who shouldn't be arrested for taking part in whatever demonstration it was and so on. And you go, oh, okay, very good. I've mentioned something, I think, completely outside anything that we have any particular business to talk about or know about. Uh, and immediately a whole new area of stuff has opened up, uh, which she knows more about than I do and which I would like to know about. So. I think part of the reason she was the right person is because she has this incredible broad interest. Um, But then more specifically, she is an expert in fairy tale and fantasy. Okay. Uh, uh, Very good on Victorian literature, uh, very good on theatre from the period, uh, very good on early children's literature. Because Hoffman is writing for young people, and this is right around the time in which a literature for children starts to exist as a meaningful genre, uh, that's very useful. So she knew a lot about all of the things that could contextualise Hoffman well, uh, with enough of a knowledge about other bits and pieces. Just one other example, I was talking about travelling to America uh, to look at some magic book collections, uh, and she said, oh, oh, I have a friend who may be interested in 
Yeah, I think he's got some quite good books. I remember going for dinner and he had some interesting things. I wonder if you know him. He's called Percy Diaconis. Oh, well. And I'm sort of going, oh, okay, of course. You know, I'm going to America to look at some book collections and you know someone who probably has a better one than all of the people who I'm going to visit uh, who have book collections. Um, yeah, so she's interested in that world. And she's also written a lot about Phantasmagoria, quite a lot about visual effects. Okay. She's talked about Pepper's Ghost and this sort of thing, early projections, early cinema stuff. Yeah. You know, all of that cultural milieu which overlaps. It all overlaps, exactly. Magic history. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. I didn't need someone who could tell me on page 39 of Modern Magic, no, of Hoffman wrote something. But having someone who could tell me, well, did you know that when he uses this word, it's an allusion to this political scandal which has just happened? Is incredible. That's and not the kind oh of gosh. thing that I know. So that's oh, wow. I, those kind of people are so incredibly inspiring. I, oh man, <laughs> I just get so excited like just hearing about people's experiences with genius level. But, but when you talk about her, it sounds like she was very like empathetic towards the the fascination with it because she you know she has all of this fascination with all these different subjects hmm. found like it sounds like you had like this this spirit guide almost for your for your hmm. studies is that she was very helpful she was also somebody who is very interesting and interested as a person as well and so when i did my first degree I was part of a, a course, and I think maybe there were 280 or 300 people on it. And so I think the only time I would interact with an academic in a one-on-one -on -one way was either for them to say, thanks for the piece of work, or for them to say, you haven't done this well enough, you need to fix it, kind of thing. But very much that sort of level. Mm -hmm. um, and Marina was entirely different to that. I don't think there was a time when she hadn't remembered something I'd mentioned about what I was doing outside the PhD work and asked me about it. Um, she would always ask, you know, how things are going. If I mentioned that I was going to see my girlfriend later on in the day, she'd say, oh, yeah, how are, how are things with your girlfriend and how are you? Mm. And so she was also a very nice person, just as a, a person. Um, and I think sort of, I think she valued that side of interacting with people. Mm. Uh, and I think that felt like a much more enjoyable thing to me than something where you're going, you're the professor, you tell me what to do or where I haven't done things right. I'm the student, I try and do it right sure. and send it back to you and that's it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I know certainly she's encountered I think some problems with the world of academia uh, as it becomes more and more financially motivated, yep. more and more about getting funding, less and less about studying the arts and more and more about the practical things that will allow you to get patents and make money and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and in fact near the end of my PhD she left the University of Essex. Uh, and I think the day after uh, she officially terminated her position, uh, a fairly damning piece in the London Review of Books was published, uh, which is Why I Left Essex, I think was the title. Uh, and it was effectively a rallying cry about the way the academic world is not giving people room to do things that they ought to be given room to do, uh, and is instead pushing this commercial aspect, which really isn't what academic stuff should be about. I mean, it's great when that happens. Yeah. You shouldn't be looking at something as an academic because it might make your university money or because it will allow your mm, administrative team to say that you have done something more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think she's part of a generation who came before that and therefore probably interacts in a different way, in a way that was much more pleasing. 
she was tailor-made to be your supervisor for this, you know, random magical <laughs> degree. I, I, I don't understand. You know, every major university in the world offers courses on a multitude of different performance arts and arts in general, arts and culture. Mm-hmm. And magic is not included amongst that. And I sort of understand that. But <laughs> you have a smile. Do you want to? I do. Well, I was just going to say that until very recently, I don't think magic had officially been defined as an art I, okay. uh, in this country. Yes. And now it has with one of the clunkiest pieces of writing I think I've yet to see. I have um, refused to read it. <laughs> my favorite thing in it, uh, and I'm afraid I can't quote exactly, uh, but it's a series of whereases, and, you know, whereas magic can be viewed as an art because yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And one of them is whereas magic... Uh, like literature, film, dance, theatre, and other art forms transcends the written word. And I'm very happy to accept that theatre transcends the written word, or that dance does perhaps, but I think it's hard to find something more constrained by the written word than literature, which is effectively (laughs) defined by being the written word. Uh, And so, yeah, I was rather surprised in quite a pleasant way to see that Literature transcends the written word, as does magic, uh, in something which apparently has officially been recognised by Congress now. But even still, yeah, which is, you know, all well and good. But I hope uh, it leads to some funding and it leads to some positive things in the future. Yeah. Uh, It just seems like a very peculiar first step in that direction. I agree. It, it, it's, um, it's just for show, I feel. There's no, it's not meaningful in any way. I don't feel, personally. Well, I think it could have a positive impact. I, I don't agree think with it that. says anything about whether magic's an art form or not. Yeah. I think the whole discussion of whether magic and art is an art form or not is massively flawed at the moment mm-hmm. because I think very few people have any sort of idea as to what they define as art. Unless you know what you're defining as art, it's very hard to say whether magic is it or not. Yes. And then, probably more problematically, I don't think I've ever heard somebody give a good definition of what magic is. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying one undefined thing is an ill-defined thing. Yeah. And that's a very, very weak sort of position to try and hold. Um, So as a magic historian, how would you define magic? You wouldn't? (laughs) I don't really have a good definition for it, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things, there's a man called um, Jason Leddington, who is believe an aesthetic philosopher although I'm not 100% sure but certainly he's written about aesthetic philosophy uh, and gave a talk in London to a group of aesthetic philosophers which was all about magic and how magic fits in to the world of belief and thought Um, and he was doing pretty well I think in getting towards having a definition of magic Uh, and he had incorporated the idea of you know the, the knowing and the not knowing thing which is clearly important um, and the, the starting point and the ending point without clear causality as mm-hmm. far as the audience is concerned and also added a fairly important point which I think a lot of people miss and which I feel tidies things up uh, which is that people have to see something impossible happening but also know that it is not happening they have to know they're being tricked unless you're aware that you are watching a trick you're not watching magic in the sense that we're doing it Yes. Uh, and I think that's rather intriguing because that fixes the problem of I don't know, let's say somebody performing miraculous things in a religious context, Mm -hmm. because regardless of the methodology they're using, uh, they're not doing a trick, so that's outside the world of magic. Uh, But then it also starts to do the same thing. You go, well, it does the same thing with spiritualism. That's now outside the world of magic. Uh, It does the same thing with a gambling demonstration. 
So when you do a gambling demonstration, you're claiming to demonstrate skill. You're not claiming to be performing any sort of trick. Mm-hmm. And that is now outside magic, which I think is a good thing. I think it's good to have a definition that tidies that down. Uh, you would also then perhaps put somebody like Darren Brown or one of the more modern iteration of mind readers outside magic because they claim to be demonstrating skills using NLP, etc., 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 as opposed to doing tricks. And so they're doing something which perhaps is related to magic, but which isn't magic in the same way optical illusion is related to magic, but isn't magic. Or uh, puzzling, like puzzle solving is mm-hmm. related to magic, but isn't magic. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there are, you know, there are steps being made towards a definition. I know Tom Stone also published a definition in Genie a little while ago, uh, which was quite good, but was much more mechanical. It was about a you know, sort of covert series of choreographical steps which allow you to create a cognitive dissonance between what's actually happening and what the audience is saying. And it sort of describes what it is in the same way a book which says do a double lift and then turn the card over and then put the card down on the table does describe what that is, but it doesn't, I don't think, have anything about the experience Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. um, or say anything about what the point of it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that idea that it's something that can be experienced as real, but which is known not to be real at the same time, is a big part of the experience of seeing a magic trick, um, which is good. But I don't know how all these definitions fit together neatly. Well, those and I don't know that someone has yet. Those two examples to me feel like a beginning and a middle, and there's no end. And what I mean by that is the Tom Stone definition that you're referencing, which I have not read. I, I'm not implicitly familiar with it. Uh, is you know sort of a here's a description a descriptional definition mm-hmm. and then um, the aesthetic philosopher's definition feels a little more like you know this is this is now looking at the art form or the you know the, in, in air quotes for the listeners the art form <laughs> HS ref yeah, the number, yeah. The number. <laughs> um, art form. Yeah, the art form. <laughs> um, but that you know that that definition is more like what it it builds upon sort of the Tom Stone definition. It takes the mechanics and then it adds in the intention of it. Yep. And then I think the end definition would take those two things and then incorporate more of the experiential. What What do you want the person to feel? You know, uh, maybe, and and because you know, no magician is going to want their audience to feel exactly the same thing necessarily. But it's it it incorporates more sort of. It builds upon the intentionality. Well, and I mean, maybe a, the sense. point is not so much what they feel, but that they are being made to feel something. Yes. In the same way as you wouldn't say a piece of music only counts if it makes you feel happy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But you might say that it doesn't count if it makes you feel nothing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think there's some way of putting all of this stuff together. There's some way of tightening it all up so it's mm-hmm. a few concise sentences rather than something that requires several paragraphs to explain. I'm yeah. sure I'm also doing um, both Tom and Jason a disservice because I think their definitions are probably more refined than I'm presenting them as. <laughs> Me I'm too. I, I haven't even done that. Initial, <laughs> initial viewpoint of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think the problem is getting to a concise definition that's easily understood and isn't self-referential. So it's not saying magic is a magical experience and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then taking that definition and saying, this doesn't describe something else. And I think another problem with a lot of the attempts at definition is, let's say it doesn't distinguish between a faux gambling expose and a magic trick, Mm -hmm. or it doesn't tidy up the difference between 
an amazing juggler who makes you feel something astonishing, but there isn't that covert overt thing. Mm -hmm. Like if you saw, a good example I think would be somebody doing contact juggling. Mm -hmm. Contact juggling looks incredibly magical. Yes. Uh, it has that feeling of this can't be happening. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes you feel something for the most part. But it doesn't have the difference between what is apparently being done and what is really being done. Yes. And so does your definition of magic distinguish that from when you are talking about magic mm -hmm. and if it doesn't then something's not quite right about the definition I think there are probably lots of other examples mm -hmm. that again you could plug in and go unless this definition really neatly tidies up between these things yeah it doesn't quite work yet well and it also is terribly difficult because magic as whatever craft art whatever you want to say doesn't have an established nomenclature upon which everyone agrees you know yeah like lift and turnover or you know, used in the same way, but they're not. You know, mm -hmm. they don't mean the same thing. Uh, is it an illusion? Is it a trick? No one really has. There's there's not a book that we can go to and say this is now. You know, Christian right. Dior has the the uh, dictionary of fashion. It has all the all, uh, all the terms, and this is what they mean. And people go, that's what that means. Mm. You know, we don't have that. There's no... Everyone disagrees no, on, on the and wording and the definitions. The other thing which I find fascinating about that is a lot of language is being created to discuss particular concepts. And so, I don't know, let us say you have the Spanish school of magic, which is, I would probably think, one of the more advanced theoretical approaches to what magic is and how it fits together. Um, and then I know Armando talks about magic theory in a very particular way, Armando Luchero, sorry, mm -hmm. uh, talks about magic in a very particular way using a particular set of language. Um, and I imagine there are other examples as well, but I think all of these people have created terms to express the idea that they're trying to express. And I wonder whether there's an argument that the way in which people think about magical theory is being constrained by the fact that the language that's being used to discuss it has been created to discuss a particular theory mm -hmm. rather than to give you access to anything. Yeah. And so you know, this is only a theory, but I do wonder whether the, there's a degree of similarity in a lot of Spanish performance because the way in which magic is discussed and written about in Spanish is based on this theoretical language and that theoretical language supports that particular theoretical approach but doesn't support other ones in the same way. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's something very interesting about the idea of whether ideas create language or language creates ideas, and I think it's mm. almost certainly a two-way thing, and I think in the world of magic theory, maybe we're letting the language create the ideas when there's something to be said for trying to have the idea and then have the language support it. Yeah. And, and, and it becomes more cohesive across language barriers that way. Now, that's another thing is that it's so hard sometimes for one language to translate into another, especially when you're talking about these abstract concepts, is the linguistics of it is a nightmare. Yes. Mm. Although I'm not sure anyone's done it in one language yet, so maybe we need to worry about no, I agree. it up in I, language Yeah, absolutely, I agree. We, we need some sort of Geneva Convention else. for magic. Yes. yes. A European Union, perhaps. There we go. Mm. Yes. Without walls, yeah, <laughs> uh, or uh, or uh, economic crises. I guess everybody, every magician has an economic crisis. <laughs> yes. Um, who who are your? Okay, for, before we get into this, I want to ask: Do you think that the American 
popular culture of magic is catching up to the rest of the world. Because to me, it seems that, I know this is like non-sector, totally jumping off, not really necessary, not necessarily, but <sighs> British magic culture seems to have been pretty strong in the last 20 to 30 years with performers like Paul Daniels and then Darren Brown and Dynamo and I, John Archer and, you know, people, people in, people in the UK being very popular. And then let's say in Spain and some other areas of Europe having, you know, huge, uh, appreciation and enjoyment of magic. America, America created the, <laughs> the bedazzled vest, I feel like. Now that may not be true, but I feel like that's been the connotation of magic and, and magicians in America for the better part of 50 years. Hmm. And do you think that, well, maybe first talk about your experience of the European magic community. And then do you think America's finally catching up with its popular culture appreciation? I suspect that the assumption in the question is incorrect. I remember talking with Guy uh, Hollingworth about coming to America and he was talking about the first time he came here mm -hmm. um, and mentioned that he learned several things on his first visit to America uh, and I think the first one he mentioned was that they're not all good after all uh, and so as somebody growing up in England and reading about American magic mm -hmm. uh, you go well who who was in American magic Jennings was in American Magic, Savon was in American Magic, Vernon was, Marlowe was, um, Rock Obama was, Kaufman was, uh, Williamson was, you know, a whole list of names like that. Of course, yeah. And as far as I was concerned, that's American Magic. Yeah. Because why would you hear about the people who are doing a mediocre packet trick that mm -hmm. isn't particularly exciting yeah. uh, on the other side of the planet? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in a similar way, somebody perhaps from America who hears about English magic will think of the names you mentioned along mm -hmm. with the guys and Noel and Richard McDougall and you know, all of these people yeah, sure. yeah. Um, and will assume that well this is this is what English magic is mm -hmm. uh, when in fact English magic is whatever 5% that and 95% a lot of other people at all sorts of other different stages with all sorts of other interests mm -hmm. in the same way American magic is 5% the great people who I heard about yeah. and 95% all of the other people with all sorts of other different levels of interest mm -hmm. which isn't to say these people are bad but just everyone isn't David Williamson in America yes I uh, agree and I'm not sure anyone would argue too strenuously about that with no. me. Well, so, I, I guess my question wasn't very clear I, I was thinking more uh, lay people's perception of magic the popular culture appreciation of magic I think it's a very very swings and roundabouts thing. Daniels clearly was a huge influence on English magic. Mm -hmm. uh, he also continued performing for quite a long time. I think it was nearly a decade. Um, and I suspect that there isn't a single person in the world who can run off their, let's say, A, B and C material for a decade mm -hmm. of doing that much television. So Paul Daniels created a very strong impression of what magic was in England. Uh, and for people who that appeals to, that makes magic very appealing. Uh, and for people who it doesn't appeal to, that makes magic very unappealing. Sure. Um, so you've got that big wave, so you build in popularity, and then there's a little tailing off at the end, perhaps, as well. Uh, and then I think David Blaine would probably be the next person who made an impact in England on magic. Um, 
and again you've got this excitement it's a, a new guy he's not doing the sort of jokes comedy mm-hmm. club kind of vibe yeah uh, so it's something different and again that appeals to a whole group of people in a different ways some people don't like it some people do that creates a big new wave and then it fades away and then maybe Darren is the next person mm-hmm. uh, and Darren I think has been intriguing because he created that wave and then around the top of the wave he said I'm not going to be someone who's doing magic trick programs anymore I'm going to move more into a documentary type of filmmaking based on things that are associated with the kind of stuff you know me for as someone doing tricks. So he's managed to sort of maintain a position in a way other people haven't, I don't think. He transcended Um, magic. Yeah, because he's moved away from magic a little bit. Um, And then Dynamo's the next person who has done astonishingly. Um, He did the the series. The series are very popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, He then did uh, three, three series in total, which were shown on sort of the main terrestrial channels. And then recently he's finished uh, an arena tour, uh, doing venues seating up to about 10,000 people. And over the course of less than a year, he's done Magic Live for over a million people, which I don't know of anyone else, I don't think, who could match that number. Um, So he's in a a big rise of popularity, and it'll be fascinating to see what happens Mm -hmm. next on where he decides to try and take that. Um, Sure. Yeah, so I think there's there's an oscillation between magic being cool and magic being uncool. But that seems um, like a very... And talking with people, I don't know, in Montana in a bar, absolutely in love with Chris Angel. Uh, not to my taste, but they think magic is pretty cool, mm-hmm. and there's this guy who's pretty cool who's doing it. Yeah. And that's great. Um, I guess there is that sort of spangled stereotype, or something mm-hmm. like Burt Wonderstone clearly plays off that yeah. but then equally something like The Prestige is showing magic in a much more nuanced mm-hmm. uh, and intriguing way I think um, and perhaps a way which is a little bit more complicated and a little bit less obvious Yeah. Um, and so that's doing something very good for it I hear Copperfield is redoing his show I'm afraid I haven't ever seen it but certainly that has a good reputation from what mm-hmm. I know Penn and Teller have a great reputation for doing live Absolutely. shows in a way which is very interesting and exciting mm-hmm. um, and so I sort of think Everywhere in the world, there'll be people who you go, hey, I do magic, and they'll go, oh, cool, my kid's 10 next month, can you yeah, do something for their party? Yeah, yeah. And then everywhere there's someone who goes, oh, I saw this film called The Prestige, and is that stuff really true? And there's someone who goes, oh, there's that guy David Copperfield, he made Statue of Liberty disappear. You know, there are all sorts of different levels of engagement, and I'm not sure that I've noticed any massive difference uh, between the UK and here okay. in that. I just, I just was curious, the reason I asked, because I had this thought last night, is that we're definitely sort of in a magical renaissance in the U.S. right now. I mean, we've got HS Ref, whatever it is, for the art of magic, you know. But, you know, we, we have... We had Wizard Wars on sci-fi, and we've got Foolish now, and we've got, you know, all these resurgence of the Vegas magic show, and we've got Blaine. He's coming out with these new specials and tours and things like that. And we've... I, we have, you know, Zach Mueller doing his videos online that are getting picked up by all these cool American blogs and stuff like that. The, but that all feels sort of sudden and in the last couple of years. And the reason that I sort of had this thought is that Fula started in the UK. It did. And I, I wondered if that was because America wasn't ready for it. My understanding is that is because if you do a program in the US, you own the format in the US. And if you do it in the UK, then that covers you for the UK, Europe, and the US with uh-huh. one broadcast. So I think that was just for a very practical... So I'm just pontificating. A very, very practical <laughs> okay. reason. 
I mean, you know, maybe there is something in what you're saying as well. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that there isn't. Um, I suppose I was saying that there isn't, but I wasn't <laughs> intending to say that there isn't. Um, but I think Fool Us was done that way for a fairly practical, okay, practical reason. Um, That's interesting. And I didn't there know was that. a there was a pilot that was filmed to start with, which established the idea. The mm. pilot got reasonable ratings, I suppose, so it was commissioned for one series. After one series, it faded away in the UK uh, and hasn't continued. And I believe they've done more than one series here. It certainly yep. seems like I've seen a lot of YouTube videos being posted, yes. which feels like it's more than one series worth. Yeah. Um, I think they're, they uh, just finished filming for series two, or maybe yeah. series three, I'm not sure. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, never mind about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one thing which I will mention, jumping back to the magical renaissance sort of idea, yeah. and also jumping back to the idea of magic in academic institutions, uh, is that there are at least two places where that's happening in a very, very interesting way, I think. Uh, one of them is South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a university which is dedicated to looking at magic uh, with a, a reasonably sizable intake. I think it was sort of 30, 40 people, something like that, wow. doing it at the time. So it isn't a niche thing, and it's certainly not something one person happens to have been able to make happen in the same way my PhD was. Uh, and then also at the University of Dance and Circus in Stockholm, uh, Tom Stone and Johan Stahl, who are both wonderful magicians, very smart people, mm-hmm. uh, managed to set up a three-week program, which is not an entire degree, but is, I can't remember, maybe 10 or 15 credits towards wow. a degree. Uh, and that's entirely based on studying performance magic. And they, I think, did a very good job. And I know that there are hopes to expand that into a full BA, yeah. uh, looking at performance magic as a thing. I don't know quite when that will happen or if it will happen. How do we make but it certainly happen? there's been a degree of interest uh, in it. Yeah. How do we make it happen? How do we all work together to... We get Congress as <laughs> a resolution. Uh, okay. Fair I enough. don't know how you make it happen. Yeah. I think it's... I think part of it is exciting people about magic, but I think that's probably an easy part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of it is telling people that there is some depth to magic and there is something that can be studied and some mm-hmm. sort of interpretive level that can be added to it beyond just doing a card trick. And again, I think that's probably an easy part of it. And I think the difficult part of it will be to find somewhere that is willing to do it mm-hmm. in a time in which arts funding is being cut. Probably all of the existing programs are under threat. Yes. And adding a new program probably means taking away from existing programs without any particular certainty of what will happen. Mm. So I imagine that the hurdles will be much more political and organisational uh, in terms of getting something to happen. Sure. Um, yeah, certainly Tom and Johan have shown that you can run a course which is successful, interesting, of value to the people doing it because they ran a second stage one and had a huge, huge turnout from people who did the first one saying, yes, I want to come back and do more of this. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and they created, I think, a good syllabus and an interesting structure and all this sort of stuff as well. So it can be done in that sense, not without hard work, but it can be done. Um, the question is how you make it happen in the organisational sense. And that's probably something that will have to come from somebody who is in the university world and used to doing that kind of thing, Yeah. as opposed to a magician saying, I would like to do this, I think. So listeners, call your congresspeople. Call your professors. <laughs> Make a case. Cite Will as having a doctorate in magic. <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, but yeah, what do you think the digital 
age has done for magic? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it inevitable? And no sense in answering the question? Or <laughs> No, I think it's a good question. And I think it's something that people should be concerned about and should be interested in. And I think the problem is that every answer that I've heard be given has been too simple in mm -hmm. one direction or the other. Sure. People have either said it's great because you can get anything. Yep. Uh, or people have said it's terrible because anyone can get everything. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's great yet, at least not clearly so. And I certainly don't think it's terrible. I think that's a bit of fear towards the idea of something novel rather mm -hmm. than anything else. Uh, and I suppose one example of that is the response to Hoffman's books when they first came out. Um, I know I'm going on about him a little bit, but no. I sort of find him interesting. Of course. Um, so Hoffman wrote Modern Magic. It was serialized in a boys magazine, uh, which had a circulation in the hundreds of thousands. So this is unprecedented exposure of how magic tricks are being done and being taught in a very detailed and careful way. Uh, and then it sold through a vast number of editions. So probably the largest piece of exposure and detailed exposure at that that had happened to date. And some people said this will be great because there will be more magicians and there'll be more people who like magic, more people who are sort of knowledgeable magic fans uh, who are the best people to appreciate magic. Uh, some people wrote saying the world will now be as full of magicians as the Jersey Shore is of mosquitoes, uh, which sounds rather negative. And one person, I can't remember who it was, I wish I could, uh, went into print and said, I wish he had died in his mother's womb. Oh which my gosh. is fairly strong today, and I suspect considerably stronger in the 1870s. Um, Stanley Collins always referred to Hoffman as the arch-exposer, uh, and never liked to allude to him as anything else. Wow. So there was a huge sort of conflict in terms of the way people interacted with that thing happening. And then, now, 150 years later, you can look back on it and go, I can see that it was shocking, I can see it was surprising. But over the course of the 70, maybe 80 years that followed, people learned how to use this idea of writing about magic in a detailed instructional way and to turn that into something very, very positive. Uh, and you know, perhaps that culminates with people like Stephen Minch and Richard Kaufman and so on, putting out, I think, incredibly well-constructed books that are incredibly useful, incredibly important in the way magic is developed and magic happens. Uh, and at the moment with the internet, we're right in that early phase. Let's say conservatively you say magic literature starts with the discovery of witchcraft in 1584. Clearly it goes back further, but that's an easy starting point. Yeah. Uh, you've then got, what, nearly 300 years before you get to Hoffman's book, mm -hmm. and then you've got, let us say, another 100 years before you get to the state of magic literature as it is today. I'm yeah. not sure it's changed too much in the recent time. Uh, the internet in total has been around for less than 50 years and magicians have been using it only for a small portion of that time. So when somebody compares the way that a book will teach you magic to the way that the internet can teach you magic, you're comparing something that people have been trying to figure out for 400 years with something people have been trying to figure out for a decade. Yeah. And I suspect in a hundred years or a few hundred years, people will have absolutely figured out how to use the internet well to teach magic. Uh, I think people perhaps just haven't got there yet. Everything is an exploration in terms of how it can be done better and better. Yeah. And the same thing with video. Using video to teach magic is further along in that journey of how it can be used, but it's still you know, a baby compared to the idea of writing about how magic can be done. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's not a case of it being good or bad, it's just a case of people haven't yet figured out what the best way of using it is and how it can best be used. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, I wish I would be around in a few hundred years to look back and go, well, that was the beginning, and now we're here, and 
look, it has worked, or look, it hasn't worked, or yeah. look, this surprising thing's happened. But my suspicion is that people will figure out how to use it incredibly well, and it will what be a very positive mean? thing. And at the moment, we just don't quite know how. What does it mean to 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 teach magic incredibly well? I think you. it means that people have an understanding of why they're doing things. Okay. I think one of the big things is if somebody does something and you disagree with it and you say, why are you doing that? And they say, because, or that's the way I learned it, or something mm-hmm. like that, then it could very well be a, a thing that they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you say to somebody, why are you doing that? And they say, well, I'm doing it because I think it does this, this, and this, then they're probably doing it right, even if you disagree with it, because they have decided what they're doing and they've decided why they are going to do it. Uh, and that makes it a, a valid choice, I think, in some ways. Um, so I think learning magic well means that people will be able to answer that question of why they're doing what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve by doing it mm-hmm. and how they think what they're doing is helping them get to the goal that they're trying to achieve. Uh, and I think there's also something to be said for a well-rounded general knowledge. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think somebody should have read all of Hoffman or read all of the Discovery of Witchcraft or all these kind of things, but I think there's a fair argument that you're not a particularly well-rounded magician. I don't think you're the the kind of good, this is what a magician could be, uh, unless you know the books exist, have some idea of what kind of things are in them, mm-hmm. and have some understanding of what happened around them. Uh, so I think a general understanding of magic history and stuff is very important in terms of somebody who's learned stuff well. A general understanding of different theoretical approaches is important. Uh, a general understanding of if you the were theory recommend... and psychology of why this works is a good thing. And I would say at the other end of the spectrum, somebody who knows all of that stuff and then poo-poos the idea of learning how to do a flourish uh, or a one-handed cut or something like this is just the same as somebody who's learned how to do loads of flourish and poo-poos the idea of reading any book that was published before 2010. Mm-hmm. You know, either version is cutting off an area that one should at least be aware of. Yeah. And so I think in an ideal case, you enjoy messing around with some sort of ridiculous one-handed flourish at the same time as reading your facsimile of the discovery of witchcraft and thinking about why the coin vanish works. Yeah. Uh, you know, one should do all of these things sure. rather than just a small small bit of them if you were going to recommend to the listeners some of the you know the your favorite books to help become a well-rounded magician what would they be just off the top of your head that's a tricky question um and i think part of the reason it's a tricky question is if you go if you read these books because i've said you should read them then you haven't become well-rounded you've become well-rounded because you've read broadly around something absolutely that you think yeah, is yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so it starts to get very prickly uh, but I think for some historical stuff, one should probably read some of Jim Steinmeier's books. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the magic press ones, the, the popular press ones, the, uh, the Glorious Deception, the book about Chung Ling Su, Howard Thurston, The Last Greatest Magician. That's a very, very good book with a very interesting point about what it means to be great, uh, what it doesn't mean to be great, and how there are different bits of greatness that mm-hmm. different people have used in different ways. Um, so that's a good thing to get sort of an in-depth look at somebody and how they did things and why they did things at a particular time. Uh, I think probably some sort of general history book is a good idea. Um, maybe Milbourne Christopher's um, History of Magic is a good thing. Edwin A. Dawes wrote a very good one. Uh, Eddie writes very, very well about almost everything. And he wrote a good popular press history of magic. But something broad in that sense would be a sure. good idea. Um, a few general magic books, uh, by which I mean things like Hoffman, 
and things like sax, sax, sort of at the old end of the spectrum. Um, things like the Divernum Book of Magic, maybe in the middle, the one which has got all sorts of general stuff and bits of theory. Uh, and then this ends some things by people like Tommy Wonder, which is not a card book, it's not a stage book, but it describes all sorts of different Incredible kinds of magic, magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and theoretical approaches and stuff. Maybe throw greater magic in there as well. Yeah. Not necessarily to read all the way through, because it is a little bit heavy going at points, sure. um, but at least have an understanding and awareness of all the different areas it talks about. Mm-hmm. And then a few more specialised things in whatever it is you want to specialise in. Yeah, absolutely. So, Royal Road, Expert Card Technique, Yeah. Um, 13 Steps to Mentalism, yeah. Anything. whatever yeah, books yeah. in any area. Yeah. And then also to read a lot of stuff that's about things that aren't magic, I think is also a very... Yes, absolutely. The, the way to become well-rounded is not just to have a, a broad general knowledge, it's to take this information and apply it to yourself. So take the book from you know the 19th century and apply that to yourself. Take the DVD from you know last year and apply that to yourself. Take the information that you get from your schooling that has nothing to do with magic and apply that to your magic. It's a, it's a literally becoming well-rounded and not just broadly knowledgeable. Hmm. Yeah, magic gives you an opportunity to say something about who you are, and the more things you have, the more of you there is to say something about. And the more interesting your magic becomes. <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Hopefully. That's, you know, that's what I think is artistic about magic. Just like in anything, you know, it's this, the, the expression of the soul, the expression of the self, the expression of the, the interesting qualities of life, what makes life worth living, so on and so forth. <laughs> with all of that in mind, you work with Helder on Half Half Mile. And... You, so you edit quarterly, which is my favorite magic publication. You're very kind. It's uh, I, I have all the issues, all three of them so far. <laughs> Fourth one on the way. And Perhaps uh, even out by the time this gets broadcast. That's that's true. Probably not, but <laughs> we, but we will see. I'm I very hopeful. To push it. <laughs> I'm very hopeful. Um, yeah. I talked to Helder recently. He just said that it's he doesn't have time. He's still doing his show, which is great. I'm happy for him. Um, so I totally understand. You know that is that is a magic publication that has no tricks. No. That's awesome. I love that. I love the essays in there. I love the different approaches to all the different magic. What is it like editing and 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 sort of because I because Dave and I wrote an article for it and that was. A nightmare for you guys, I'm sure, because we kept putting it off and and not doing it. And is it? Do you have that experience with everyone? What is it like to edit a magic? Most people are very punctual. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll edit it down. Most people are very punctual. You were saying. <laughs> Most people are very punctual. Uh, editing a magazine is always interesting because every magazine is trying to represent something. I mm-hmm. think, and so I edit the Magic Circular, the Magic Circles magazine. And the goal of that is to represent the magic circle and its interests. And I edit the Young Magicians Club magazine, which is for our youth project. And I suppose the goal of that is to represent the interests of that club, but also to make an audience of people aware of stuff that they ought to be aware of as young magicians uh, and to try and convey something of what is out there. Uh, And Quarterly is an interesting magazine because it is, I suppose, defined by Helder and I's interest. Uh, and so the general guideline for what would we publish and what wouldn't we publish is if I would like to read it or Helder would like to read it, then we'll probably publish it. 
and if Helder and I would both not like to read it, then we probably won't publish it. So it's a very enjoyable thing to do because you go, what articles would I like to read and written by whom? And then will they do it? And if they will, great, then I get to read it. Um, and part of me reading it does also mean I have to edit and check and all this sort of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, I get to read the articles by people I would like about things that I think are interesting. Uh, so yeah, it's a very pleasant magazine in that way. It's yeah, I think that it's such a there's such a purity about it because it is sort of a it gets done when it gets done, and hmm. you know this is what we want out of it, and you know it doesn't come out until it is the thing that we envisioned. Yeah, and that's like that's yeah, awesome. and I think that's important. I suspect that the publishing schedule will become a little more regular. Uh, again, as we sort of work out, held has been busy in an almost unprecedented way, I suspect. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've also found myself much busier than anticipated at various points as work on this should have happened. And I think now we've done that once, we'll both be able to know when that's happening again and cope with this in a mm -hmm. better way. Um, so the publishing should become more regular. But at the end of the day, we have both said we would much rather get an article from somebody and then send it back saying, look, this is interesting, but it's not really what we were after. Can you shape it in this direction and hold up the magazine for a few weeks to get that? Yeah. Then just to go, well, at least we've got the words, let's put it out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we definitely want the content to be more important it's than the date important. on which it comes out. Yes, I agree. And I, and that's a, a beautiful and rare thing. Not to say that, well, you know, what what's coming out now isn't good. It's just... It's it, it feels artisanal. It feels you know uh, uh, special. It, you know, it feels like small batch, handmade. Yeah, and that's also part of the goal. Yeah, is to say, feels there's something about the experience of getting a magic book or a journal or something like this, uh, which is special and intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the way we consume stuff now is larger and larger print runs available more and more easily for less and less money. And that takes away something of the specialness. Mm. Certainly when I was younger, I remember being given a magic book for Christmas. I think it was the second volume of the collected works of Alex Elmsley. And it was my magic book for the next four months or something. Uh, and I sat in my room and I read every trick, cover to cover. And I got the cards for everything, cover to cover. And I worked through everything and made sure that I could remember everything. And yeah, I did the whole book. Uh, whereas... Now, partly because of reviewing and all this sort of stuff, I find myself, you know, if I was given that book today, I would skim it. I'd read through some of the effect descriptions, a couple of methods that seemed intriguing, and that would probably be it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something about getting something which is small batch and put together by hand and has your name handwritten in the front of it and all this sort of stuff, yeah. which goes back a little bit to the, this is something just to sort of slowly enjoy over a period of time. Yeah, you're more reverent for Consume it. in a very fast very easy mm -hmm. no it's beautiful I, I I think you guys do a, a marvelous job on it and mm. like I said it's my favorite it's my favorite publication I recommend it to everybody that I know because the magicians in there are great thinkers and and wonderful writers myself excluded <laughs> uh, but you know I was I was super pleased to um, uh, Roberta Mencia wrote about Gabby Pereiras mm -hmm. that lit me on fire I was so excited about that to have yep, that that was and very good 
Mm, he also wrote a piece about René Lavande, mm-hmm. uh, which was very good in the first issue. Yes. And in the forthcoming issue, he will be writing another piece, which I found very interesting to read, certainly. Uh, and I hope other people will too, which looks at René Lavande and what he did with his magic and the way it was perceived, compares that to Gabby Pereira's approach, finds that the two don't quite tie together, and neither does René's approach tie in with the more Tamaritzian magic way sort of approach to things mm-hmm. and then tries to say something about what defines Rene's approach to magic and how that used to work mm-hmm. um, which again is very interesting it feels like they sort of continue through yeah the continuity of it is lovely um, yeah he's one of my favourite writers I think oh, that's great and I someone I know very little about so that's always quite pleasing as well yeah I've never seen him do something to the best of my knowledge I've never met him we've emailed a little bit but mm-hmm. I could walk past him in the street and not have a clue <laughs> Uh, so it's nice to get articles every now and then and enjoy reading them very much learn a little bit about him Mm. through his writing that's great and I guess that's is that something that is 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 that part of the experience as far as being like historically very knowledgeable it's sort of living vicariously through these other people is that something that you even think about or are conscious of is that you're, you're experiencing other people's thought patterns and and life experiences yeah I mean on on one hand there certainly is a a view that the history of magic is a a limitless supply of case studies where you can go I am trying to do whatever it is I'm trying to do and somebody else has already tried that and they've already tried it in a number of different ways and their successful failure has been recorded so I can find out what they did Mm -hmm. how it worked, why it worked I can look back on the period in which they were doing it and find out something about why it was culturally relevant and what context it appeared in and so forth, and then use that to make some sort of decision. So certainly that's an aspect of the appeal of it. Um, Yeah, Peter Lamont, I was talking with him once about magic history stuff, and he made a rather good observation, I think, which is that there are two things that can happen when you look at something in history. Uh, One thing is that things can change, Uh, and that's interesting and a lot of people write about that Uh, and the other thing is that things can stay the same and that feels less interesting than a change happening and people write about it far less than a change happening but in fact something staying the same through a period of time can be just as valuable and just as useful a piece of information as something changing at a point Um, so I find it fascinating that in the close-up gallery at Magic Castle in 2016, uh, I can do a trick that was published in a manuscript in 1792 when Los Angeles was only a small outpost of the Spanish Empire, Um, but I can still do that trick today, and it doesn't matter that cars and planes and the internet and phones and telegraph and all these things have been invented in the interim, electric writing, uh, a good card trick is still a very good card trick, and there's something about that which hasn't changed. So. Yeah, I very much like the idea history is full of two things, things changing and things not changing, and both of them are interesting, and both of them say something. Wow. It, do, do, you think that, do you think that speaks to... And, and this isn't even just about magic history, but just the idea that human nature hasn't changed much in the last five to eight hundred years, let's just say. Hmm. Even with the advent of all of this technology, you know, we still study Shakespeare. We still do great card tricks from the 1800s to 1700s. We still do bad card tricks from we the 1800s to the 1700s. Yes, as well. we do. <laughs> um, 
but it's yeah, the idea it's... that you know this this people people were able to transcend humanity all throughout history and it's still appreciated yeah either that or just very much people were part of humanity and so are we and we tend to think of the past as being an incredibly different place mm. and in many ways it was an incredibly different place but we also tend to have this narrative about superiority today uh, and a lot of the way we fuel the narrative of superiority today is to say things that happened before weren't as good because yeah. by saying things weren't as good then we can say we're better now and in some cases this is true clearly there are things that historically have happened that we would be rather upset if they were happening today yeah. um, but at the same time part of that is just a way to make ourselves feel better about where we are now mm-hmm. and you know, in many cases I think there isn't that much that's different and that's quite good in many ways people still want the same kind of things yeah absolutely happy healthy all that sort of stuff Maslow's hierarchy of needs indeed hmm. around before they were invented yeah <laughs> far before um, well there's I, I have a couple more things on my on my little list one of them is uh, you know you consult for television and film yes yeah, is that interesting fulfilling and is it uh, something that you would recommend to people that are interested in magic history and you know just tell me about it I'm just interested mm. I want to know about working with Scorsese I want, to, I want to know if that was cool. Yeah, he was a very <laughs> lovely man, a very nice man, um, and very impressive in that he was very personable. And he said, call me Marty, I think the first time I met him. Wow, that's and cool. And Marty may be something that you can say in an American accent, um, but in English it sounds like you're referring to a type of sweet candy uh, called a Smarty. And so he remained Mr. Scorsese, I think, uh, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. But... He was very personable, very friendly, and very good at saying, I have no idea what can happen here, so give me six options that I can decide between, uh, when he didn't know, and was completely comfortable not knowing, and then when he did know what he wanted, saying, it's happening this way, and that's it. Um, And I think you get a lot of people who will say, it's happening this way, I've made my choice, and I don't think you'll get so many people who will be comfortable saying, I have no idea, Mm -hmm. so can you give me some options, can you tell me what should happen? And there was something very impressive about seeing him do that. Um, I suppose his, his reputation is such that he doesn't lose anything by putting himself in a lower status position of saying, I don't know. Uh, and that was a very good thing to do and a good way to make the film better, I think. That's so that was cool. Um, yeah, and it was great fun. I'd never been on a film set before um, doing that film. I didn't know it was going to be a big film at the beginning. I thought a few kind of studenty film things had approached me about various things. Uh, and primarily they had been absolutely awful um, you know they would ask for a few days helping to make something happen uh, promise at least some form of favours in terms of help with videoing something in the future or credit or copies of the thing that could be shown to other people and so on uh, and I think universally didn't do any of the things they had said they would mm-hmm. so I was a little sceptical of the whole film thing and then got a call from people about this film didn't tell me what it was called but just said we need some magic stuff for this and would you be able to help us and I was sort of a little bit well I don't know about this Uh, but they said we'll send a a car to pick you up so 
you know, there's no hassle for you, it's just a morning. No, that sounds lovely. Uh, so I was expecting an Uber to turn up uh, outside my house, and instead a Rolls Royce turned up outside Holy my cow. house. Holy <laughs> uh, With a very smartly dressed chauffeur, and I was driven to Shepparton Studios, which is one of the two main studios outside London, uh, and sort of walked into a large office with a massive production team doing all sorts of concept artwork and stuff. Uh, at which point it became fairly apparent it wasn't a student film after all. And so that was intriguing. And then in terms of working on it, it was fantastic because I had already booked a trip to America at that mm-hmm. point to do some lectures. And one thing I dislike more than almost any other is when you have somebody who's going to do a lecture at a magic club that you're looking forward to and then they cancel because they've been given a cruise or they've been offered something else. It seems very unfair to turn down something you've agreed to do just because something you feel is better has turned up. So I didn't want to be the person who said, I'm not doing your lectures because of this. Uh, so I told the film people I wasn't around for that bit. Uh, and that meant that they got Paul Keeve to do some of it, uh, who's a wonderful magician, very, very smart consultant, has done far more work than I will ever do on film, television, uh, theatre projects. Uh, and so he worked on it whilst I was away. And then he was away a little bit later on. And there was a crossover bit in the middle. So I did a little bit right at the beginning. Then he did a chunk of work on it. Then we did a chunk of work on it when we were both around at the same time. And then I did a little bit of stuff whilst he was away at the end. And that meant not only did I get the enjoyment of working on the film and the pleasure of using some of the sort of historical knowledge and stuff that I have, uh, but also I got to see how somebody who does it really, really well does it. Um, oh, that's exciting. And so it was great in that context as well. That's very cool. Yeah, it was good. All in all, it was a very pleasant summer. Mm-hmm. And the world of film is a very strange world. I don't think I fully understand, but I'm not sure anyone fully understands. I couldn't imagine they do. Yeah, they just have a very different logic about things. So one of the things I found most surprising was that they would want to film something one afternoon, uh, and they would want Paul or I to be there to make mm-hmm. sure that everything was working properly, and if it didn't work properly, to fix it. Uh, and so they would book us for a week. And so we would be in the studio from 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night, every day for a week, uh, so as to help them with a 30-minute shot that they wanted to film, uh, which feels crazy. They were paying, um, and it seems odd to want to pay somebody for a week when they're going to be actually working for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it took me quite some time to get my head around the idea that it was more cost-effective for them to pay to have everyone there who might be needed at some point than it was for them to have to say, we want to do this, but we're going to pause for 30 minutes whilst we get this person. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's just a very different way of approaching things. And never have I felt more pressure for the string not to break uh, (laughs) than I did on that film. No, I can imagine. You also, there's a clip on your website of you um, consulting for like a a period drama piece. You you did a a three-card mining routine. Yeah, there's a program called Wolf Hall um, that was based on a Hilary Mantel novel of the same name that I think won the Man Booker Prize uh, a little while ago and it's a historical novel about uh, Cromwell and his position in Henry VIII's court and it's very good uh, two parts have been written, the third part hasn't been written, uh, although I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers if I say I don't think it's going to end well for Henry VIII or for <laughs> Cromwell um, <laughs> And the first two parts were adapted into a six-part TV show. And they had a man called Mark Rylance, who I think is widely described as the finest Shakespearean actor alive today, uh, and who won an Oscar for something to do with a spy, I think, recently, uh, a film that he was in. 
And yeah, he had to play the part of Cromwell, and in one of the scenes he has to do a three-card Monty-type sequence. And so they asked me if I could help him to do that. So we came up with a nice little simple Monty sequence. Uh, went round to his house, which is in Shakespeare Drive, uh, somewhat ironically. Uh, there are several of them, so that won't help you if you're trying to find him. <laughs> and taught him how to do it. Uh, he practiced and then turned up on set, and we went through it on set and sort of made sure it looked right. Yeah, it did look right. It looked. I was really impressed. I've, I've seen very few actors do... Uh, apparent sleight of hand in a way mm. that looks like it's something they practice for a really long time. Yeah, so the intriguing thing about it, I suppose, A, Mark is very good at that. Uh, from what I understand, he will learn how to do something properly if he needs to be able to do it on film. Uh, and then B, uh, he did do it all properly, although it's not entirely apparent from the film. Mm -hmm. The way they've cut it, the, the three-card Monty is really just a narrative device. Yep. And the point of it is to say that there's this character who you're meeting, and this is the first hint that maybe he has had a fairly rich and varied life, mm -hmm. uh, and done all sorts of different things, some above the law, some perhaps not above the law, mm -hmm. uh, in the past. And this is a window to give you that picture. And so the point of the piece is more about the conversation he's having with Cardinal Wolsey at the time uh, whilst doing the three-card Monty. Mm -hmm. And so the cutting is slightly irritating because he could do a very good false throw. I, I was just was doing say, very good false throws. Yeah. But I think the way it was cut, everything could have been done just by him putting them down and then switching them around yeah, absolutely. as they cut. But if you saw it all from one position, you'd have seen a perfectly competent demonstration uh, a three-card Monty sort of exhibition-style thing, uh -huh. as opposed to an actual game-playing thing. Sure. Um, but yeah. Well, congrats on that. Teaching the greatest Shakespearean actor who recently won an Oscar how to do a card trick, and he did it well. He did do it very well. That's something you can put on your resume. That's pretty it, cool. It is something I have put on my resume. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> in fact. Um, and the other intriguing thing about it was they wanted cards that would seem somewhat appropriate for the period. That's right. And it turns out it's not so easy to find decent sort of 16th century style playing cards. Um, we bought some from an online place and they were mm, laser printed on bits of paper, yeah. uh, which was not ideal. But then because it was a reasonably sized television program, uh, they had someone from the art department go to the V&A and they looked through a number of the old packs of cards at the V&A uh, and then chose uh, sort of an amalgamation of several of the designs and used that to print the cards. So the cards that are used in the show uh, were all hand printed uh, in two different colors, playing card by playing card. Uh, they were all printed on like a thick card stock uh, one by one and then they were all hand cut as well. So it was quite intriguing being able to use a set of cards that had been made one by one um, yeah, in terms of printing and cutting rather than a mass-produced deck. Oh, that's very cool. Are you and are you allowed to talk about any consulting that you may be doing here in the near future? Um, I am not, to the best of my knowledge, uh, <laughs> to either question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's move on to Breathe Magic, hmm. uh, which is... Uh, just tell us a little bit about what it is. I don't want to miscommunicate. So Breathe Magic is an arts health program uh, it's run by an organization now called Breathe Arts Health Research and it was started by a magician called David Owen about eight years ago now I think. Um, David won the Young Magician of the Year competition at the Magic Circle, uh, is a very good magician uh, and also works as a QC um, and mediator and he has always liked magic and wanted to do something with magic but didn't feel that perhaps doing regular performances 
was the thing. Uh, his parents both worked in a hospital environment, so he felt very comfortable there. And I suppose partly based on David Copperfield's Project Magic, he decided maybe there was something to be done with magic and healthcare. Uh, he went round a number of hospitals suggesting it. A lot of people were keen on the why don't you come in and do a show for the kids sort of thing, but mm -hmm. I think he wanted to do something a little more than that. Uh, and then eventually he met a lady called Yvonne Farquharson, uh, who was working at... Um, working at a hospital in London, anyway, uh, in the arts department, uh, coming up with ways to integrate arts and health. Uh, and then she introduced him to uh, a lady called Dr. Dido Green and another lady called Amali Moore, who are both specialists in occupational therapy. And a decision was made that magic could perhaps be used to help children with a condition called hemiplegia, uh, which is something a little bit like a stroke, uh, which normally occurs between birth and a few years old and it leads to some cognitive problems sometimes, uh, but primarily uh, limited movement on one side of the body. So one side of the body will work fine, the other side won't. And it's a disability which is severe enough to have a big impact. Uh, things like doing up buttons or opening packets of chips, uh, opening doors, all that kind of thing is very difficult, but it's not severe enough that you go into any sort of special education. So you'll be in mainstream schooling, but probably be the slowest and the last to be picked or any sort of physical activity, sure. uh, which is bound to affect your confidence. And so the idea that came out of this meeting was that we could teach these young people magic tricks. Uh, the magic tricks could be specially designed so as to incorporate the activities that the occupational therapists would want the young people practicing mm -hmm. uh, to improve their motor function. Uh, the young people would want to practice in a way that they wouldn't want to practice picking up a coin, dropping it in a cup and then tipping it back out on the table for five minutes every day. So they should get better responses because of the practice. And then also perhaps there would be some sort of psychosocial benefit uh, because for the first time in their life they would be special in a good way mm -hmm. rather than different in a bad way. Um, it turned out that it worked really quite well. Uh, one of the things that Breathe has always wanted to do is to make sure everything's backed up with clinical data. So rather than just saying, look at the kids having a nice time, uh, we can say this is the percentage improvement in terms of using both hands for these children, and this is how that will be maintained over the course of the next year of their life. So our program can be compared to uh, an injection maybe to help the tendons move more freely, uh, or an operation, or any other sort of treatment. Uh, and in fact, because of that, we now have mainstream NHS funding. So in the same way, if you break your leg, you can be sent for an x-ray and then have a cast applied. If you have hemiplegia and you're suitable, you can be sent on our program as a clinically beneficial thing. Wow. Uh, so, but it came from David uh, Owen to start with. Uh, then Richard McDougall, who's a, a very, very wonderful magician uh, in London, joined him and started working on it. And then a little later, I wrote a piece about it for the Magic Circular, uh, went to one of their sessions and sort of just didn't leave. Uh, and so I've wound up doing more and more of it uh, and then since that point Laura London has started doing it as well also a magician called Christopher Howell who's very wonderful uh, and another magician called Ed Hilson uh, so there's a little group of us doing more and more of this work and it seems to go very well mm. we have a lot of moments which are very touching in a way beyond magic tricks mm -hmm. um, for example there was one little boy who was trying to learn the cups and balls which is a good trick because you have to pick up small objects, pass them from hand to hand, put them down in a very careful and precise way. Uh, so he was learning this and then at uh, one point about a week into the program uh, he sort of came over and opened his hand so that it was flat uh, and showed us the inside of his palm and said look, look what I can do. Um, and we're sort of going great, very good, you've opened your hand. Um, not really quite grasping the significance yeah. and then it became quite clear when he showed his mother later on and she immediately burst out into tears 
uh, that his hand is a very, very tight hand. Uh-huh. Uh, I hadn't worked with him much at that point, so I hadn't realised, but his hand is a very tight hand, and he had never been able to open it. Wow. So when he was doing this, this was within the first day or two of his life that he'd ever been able to see the palm of his hand because he hadn't had the control and the ability to open his fingers out uh, beforehand. And that's an important thing, an impressive thing, and then becomes even more important when you go, being able to do that means things like being able to dress yourself in the morning, being able to make your own food, being able to eat your packed lunch, being able to do better in terms of drawing things because you can hold a ruler and a pencil at the same time. And almost every aspect of day-to-day life suddenly becomes much, much better. Yeah. Uh, and makes, I think, a very real difference to the quality of life. Uh, you know, if anyone listening wants to have a go and sort of see what this might be like, I think a comparable thing would be to get a pair of skiing mittens uh, or perhaps oven gloves that you might use to protect your hands when you're taking something out of the oven. Uh, put one of those on one of your hands and then try and do everything that you do for a day uh, with it on. And you'll find very quickly, I think, uh, that things that you take for granted become a whole lot more difficult and that life becomes much more difficult when you can't do them. So breathing is helping people with that sort of thing. Mm. Then, as a separate thing, uh, we've also done some pilot programs, which haven't gone quite so far yet, but hopefully will, uh, using magic with adult stroke survivors, um, because I think a big frustration for them is the fact that they're being taught how to make toast and make coffee and this sort of thing, which is a little patronising when you've been able to do that for the last 50 years and very disheartening yeah. to be working so hard to get back to a level that you were already at. Uh, and instead, by teaching them a magic trick, you're teaching them to be better at something than they ever have been at any point in their life before. Mm-hmm. So that feels more like a, a genuine improvement. It feels more like learning a new skill rather than working so hard just to gain something that was once so easy. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, more empowering and more encouraging in terms of practicing stuff. And then we've also done some work with children um, in a secure psychiatric unit uh, with a variety of eating disorders and other sorts of things, teaching them magic as a way to encourage positive engagement with other people. Uh, Because you can teach a magic trick to someone, they quite like the idea of being able to do it. And then a little later on you can say, you know, you should really see what this looks like. Uh, And for somebody who is refusing to look in a mirror or have the photo taken or anything like that, uh, the idea of seeing what a spongeable vanish looks like in their hands is compelling enough to go okay well let's video my hands so i can see this and then they're excited because it's good and now they're seeing themselves within the framework of something positive they have the positive and then you can say well you know it would be good if you could practice and see what it looks like so maybe we can get you a little mirror and you can see just your hands and you can practice that way and so you're starting to allow all of these positive interactions with images of self to occur and also give the person something very positive they can show other people because they know the only way they're going to get the full kick out of a magic trick is to show it to someone. And if they're showing it to someone, then they need to talk to the person, they need to look at them in the eye sometimes, they need to look at their hands at other times, and they need to do all of those things to do with a positive communication. And so it hopefully allows that kind of thing to be reframed. And again, we've done a little pilot work in that area, which has been positive, but hopefully we'll do more in the future. It's incredibly powerful and moving. Oh my gosh. The other thing I should mention as well, we've produced a number of short videos that demonstrate this kind of thing. Uh, I don't know whether there's text that accompanies these podcasts, but maybe we can put a link in there. Yeah. Uh, and if we can't, if you go to Breathe AHR, Breathe as you would expect to say it, uh, AHR.org, uh, uh, I think you'll find the stuff. Certainly if you search for Breathe Magic on Google, you'll find it. Okay, yeah, I, absolutely. I would be more than happy to share this stuff. The the 
oh man, the psychological impact that you're having on these people's lives is absolutely world changing. I mean, it's you're improving their quality of living immeasurably, which yes, is I think so. such a beautiful. Mm. And by way of another thing. example of that, one of the children was in school, uh, and. Uh, about six months after the program, we got an email from his mother saying that he'd been put up into a, a higher class, um, and that the reason was beforehand he would have described himself as a disabled kid who couldn't do something, uh, and then after doing the magic program, he had decided that he was a kid who could do anything as long as he tried hard and worked hard at it, uh, and that sort of shift in approach and attitude transferred into academic work, transferred into day to life, and all those sort of things as well. So I think the metaphor of magic is something which is impossible, but which when you have worked hard on, you can make happen, even though it is impossible to do. Yeah. Transfers quite nicely into this idea of you can work hard at anything and you can make it happen. Self-transformation. Which is a very useful message. Wow. That's incredible. So beautiful. I love that so much. I don't, like I, I'm speechless just thinking about it. I'm very moved. And in a very pleasing way as well, it also all ties up with the Hoffman stuff where you're using magic as an educational contrivance to teach some skill other than being able to be a magician yourself. Uh, so it's intriguing in a slightly ill-planned way um, that I sort of found my way in magic by doing lectures and writing about magic, then doing a PhD based on somebody who taught magic as an educational contrivance, and in the middle of all of that started to get involved with Breathe using magic as an educational contrivance and with the world of the Young Magicians Club and the Magic Circular, where you're trying to say something about what magic can do, uh, which may be about magic or maybe just about real life. So, yeah, it sort of feels like it was planned. It's come full circle. <laughs> wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was such a pleasure. Pleasure. We did a 140. That was pretty good. Are you happy with that? I'm happy with that. Are you happy with that? I'm happy with that, yes. You had doubts last night. I feel night. like we might be waffling a little if we talked more. <laughs> I think so. Well, I, I, I just... I think we uh, may have been waffling a little already. But. Well, but that's okay. But it's fine. <laughs> People enjoy this. They put it on in the car and they just, you know... Hmm. Yeah. It's not active listening. <laughs> if you can't do anything else, then maybe it is a good thing. <laughs> uh, hmm. But, yeah, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. We'll, we'll have to do it again. Maybe next time you're in the States can catch up on some new stuff yeah, it could be pleasant yeah could be we'll see <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you again yeah, you're welcome